We've got a lot of activities going on the next few weeks. Let's just pray here real quick before we get going. Uh, Lord, once again, thank you for the time to be here. Thank you for the people you brought out. I just pray this is a time to be equipped, to learn, to grow, to minister, and to go home and make a difference for eternity through Jesus Christ, Lord, and to give you the glory and always say and do. Once again, we give you the shoeboxes. What a ministry that is. And for every child that's going to receive that, I pray their heart is open to the gospel. Every hand that's going to touch those boxes, they would just represent Jesus in all ways. In your name, amen. Amen. Real quick, a testimony about the shoeboxes before we get going in. Um, I believe it was last year, Lisa Neese, who is a teacher, contacted me and said, what would you think about doing the shoeboxes for my classroom at school? And we thought, that was a great idea. We consider that kind of a double gospel. The kids are going to receive the shoeboxes, and as they receive the shoeboxes, the gospel is presented to them. But then as the kids here are preparing the shoeboxes, there's an understanding of what you're doing and why you're doing it, to bless this child not only with Christmas in different parts of the world, but also to hopefully understand that this is the gospel message going out. So then she came back this year and said, hey, I got an idea. What do you think? Instead of having my classroom do it, what do you think of having the school do it? I said, that, that sounds good. So she contacted me yesterday in the school that she goes to. They're doing like 176. And that's per, it is pretty neat. And so to God be the glory because you stop and you think that's all, all those kids hopefully went home and had a conversation with mom and dad and said, what are we doing? Well, we're packing these shoeboxes. Why are we packing these shoeboxes? Well, to bless a child with Christmas, and plus it just the idea of the gospel comes up, and people get to sit and chew on that. So it's pretty neat to see, and I know there's some other uh, teachers in the public school system that were looking into that, doing that as well. Just an opportunity to get it out there. That's all that matters. That's really all that matters. So a big thanks. It's always fun and exciting. You know, we don't focus on, on numbers out here. We've always kind of looked at it as, you know, whatever the Lord brings is what the Lord brings. We've never tried to be a church that says, let's try to grow. God just takes care of that. But the times we do ever focus on numbers is we like to focus on numbers for Vacation Bible School because we want as many kids to come through as possible to hear the gospel and to go home and represent Jesus to their families and also for shoeboxes. To think each one of those is a kid that's going to receive that and before they receive it, we've shown you the videos before, they have the gospel presented to them and what an amazing thing that is. So it's always fun to hear next Sunday how many boxes came in and thank you for keeping that in prayer. Proverbs 14 this morning, as you've heard me say many times here through our study in the book of Proverbs, a proverb is a short, simple, profound truth. On the surface, it's very simple and easy to grasp, but as you kind of really think in it, it's very deep and profound. The first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs lays the foundation of what wisdom is. Wisdom is God's way of thinking. Then you add knowledge and understanding, God's way of doing it and God's way of applying it. So when you have wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, you have God's way of thinking, God's way of doing it, God's way of applying it. You put the fear of the Lord in there, and that's a beautiful combination. Now, these proverbs that you see usually have a pro and a con, a positive and a negative. That's the way Hebrew poetry works. A great example is Proverbs 14.1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. You see the idea of the pro, wise woman building. You see the con, foolish tearing it down. And as we teach through the book of Proverbs, we go by each chapter. And each chapter, we may not go exactly in the verse order, but we'll cover every verse because we kind of go as the topic goes. Now, that's the way we've been doing Proverbs through the first 13 chapters. Proverbs 14 has too much in it. We're going to have to do Proverbs 14 over two weeks. We will still cover every verse, but there's so much in it that we need to make sure that we understand that. 
And so that's why we're going to do it over two weeks. And here's our foundational verse for Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14, verse 1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. We will spend the next hour talking about how women cause problems and cause this. So. The wise woman builds her house, the foolish pulls it down with her hands. The other verse that we're going to spend a lot of time with is the house, verse 11. The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. We want to talk about your home today. Now, if you are here today and you are married, your home includes your spouse. If you're here today and you're not married, your home is just you. Either way, you have a home. You have a unit that you are spiritually responsible for in some ways. And the whole point of today is, is your home, is your house focused on the Lord? There will be a lot of points today that do deal with the idea of marriage. But if you are here today and you're single, I don't want you to tune out. Because it also still applies to you. In some ways, marriage is very difficult. It is. Because with marriage, you are now having two people come together, committed to each other in the Lord and to life for the rest of their life. Now, that sounds great on paper, but you've got to remember this. I'll use Dawn and I as an example. I am an awful, horrible sinner. Dawn is an awful, horrible sinner. We have now chosen to live together as two awful, horrible sinners in the Lord. And we have now chosen to reproduce more awful, horrible sinners. And so every time we have another child, there's another awful, horrible sinner being raised by two awful, horrible sinners. And God says, I want to bless this. So... If you are here today and you are married, please realize that your spouse that you struggle with is an awful, horrible sinner just like you are. And please remember those kids that sometimes you struggle with, they're awful, horrible sinners just like you are. And that's the beauty of the grace of God. Also remember if you're here today and you're single and you say, oh, it's so much easier. In some ways it is. In some ways it is. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 7. There is sometimes an easierness to being single in some ways. But there's also a trouble in being single is this. When you live by yourself, you may not have the spiritual accountability that you have being married. You know, Dawn and I have our kids. We have other people come live with us at different times of the years and the seasons. That makes you live differently. Makes you communicate differently. Makes you argue differently. Make you talk differently. You watch different things. You listen to different things. You live a different life because there's all these other people watching you. Sometimes when you're by yourself, no one else knows. No one else sees. No one else understands. doesn't matter what I listen to. It doesn't matter what I watch. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said integrity. Integrity is doing the right thing when no one else is watching. And understanding that the Holy Spirit sees and knows all things. So we're going to start out with understanding what the foundation of the house is supposed to be. Whether single or individual. Let's take a look at this. Go with me to Psalm 127 please. Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is probably the best passage in the Bible. Understanding what the house, the home is supposed to be. Be it married, be it single. Be it just a bedroom in your parents house. You still have a spiritual influence. You still have a spiritual responsibility. Psalm 127, it's a short psalm, we'll read all of it. Verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Please understand verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain and build it. I run into people that really want their house, their marriage, their home, their life to be different. I mean, they really honestly desire it. And they will put a lot of time, energy, and effort into that house, that home, that life, that walk with Christ. If they are married, they're married, or in just their personal life. 
They will try really hard. But understand, unless you are trying and making the foundation of Jesus Christ, it is all completely in vain. Completely in vain. It is so hard. I'll see people come in and they desperately want their lives, their marriages, everything to be different. And they're going to work at it. That's the problem right there. They are going to work at it. The foundation of your home, of your life, of everything has to be the Christ. It has to be Christ. Look at verse 1. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Everything else is vain. It is vanity. It is useless. Now, some of you may take offense to that. and You may say, no, no, there's some good that can come out of it. Listen, you can work hard for a while and make some progress in life. But ultimately, the foundation has to be Christ, because without the foundation of Christ, it eventually comes tumbling down. If you remember correctly the story of Ben Franklin, Ben Franklin had this list of vices that he had. And he said, these are the different vices, sins that I'm struggling with, so I'm going to work at them. And you remember how the story goes. He would stop and he'd put all his effort into one sin, to the point of he would not commit that sin, that vice anymore. And he completed it, he defeated it, he would move on to the next one. And what he found out was, as he's moved on to the next one, put all his time and energy on the next one, that first one started popping back up again. So he would go backwards and work on the first one again until he had it defeated. Then he'd move on to the next one, and next thing you know, it popped back up again. See, with some effort, you can kind of live a pure life to an extent, but you'll never be pure in the Lord. Everything has to have the foundation of the Lord. Let me get that point out there. And if you're here today, be it married, single, whatever it is, your life has to have the foundation of the Lord. Your house has to have the foundation of the Lord. Anything else to that is vanity. It's useless. I was reading a commentary on this by John Corson, and he's got a paragraph on this I just want to share. It says, With 50% of all first marriages failing, the family is under attack, and Christians are not immune. Even if you're walking close to the Lord, you'll experience attack and assault upon your marriage. Why? Because Satan knows that marriage is a picture of the love relationship between Jesus and his church. Therefore, if he can mar that picture, he'll accomplish a great objective in his attempt to skew the picture people have of the Lord. What's the solution then? The Lord must build the family. Anything else is in vain. You can get up early. You can stay up late. You can eat the bread of sorrow, wondering if your kids are going to turn out okay. But it's all in vain. Jesus reduced it to such incredible simplicity when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, Matthew 6, 33. The best investment you can make as a couple or as a family is to spend time on your knees together seeking the Lord. How easy is it for us to want to go to seminars, read books about how to have a healthy marriage, but we won't do the foundational thing, which is seek the Lord together. It's a waste of time to cultivate communication skills, If you're not seeking God together, it's pointless to establish a relationship built on fun, vacation, or recreation if you're not seeking the Lord together. A lot of truth to that. See, and this is what's hard, because you see people putting energy and effort into their family. They want their family to be different. And you want to pat them on the back for that. But unless the Lord builds the house, it's all in vain. Unless the Lord is the foundation, it's all in vain. Listen, if your marriage is struggling, you can have as many little romantic walks on the beach that you want. They'll be momentarily, temporarily happy. But unless you make the Lord the foundation, it ain't going to last. And that's the goal that we have to say right here, is understanding this point before we move on to anything else. So be it single, be it married, you have a household, you have a room, you have a something, you have a responsibility, and I hope that is in the Lord. So with that foundation, let's come back now to Proverbs, please. 
Proverbs. And I actually want to take you to Proverbs 24 before we get back to 14. Just to kind of confirm this point, take a look at Proverbs 24 with me, starting in verse 3. Through wisdom, a house is built. By understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Hey, guys, there's our words. Wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. That's what it comes down to. Wisdom builds your house. Understanding establishes your house. Knowledge fills your house. Wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Make that the foundation of the Lord and all you do and say and see what happens. Now back to Proverbs 14. What's the problem, though, with this? This sounds so good. It sounds so easy. As we already mentioned before in the introduction, we're all awful, horrible sinners trying to have a godly marriage. We're trying to have a godly life. What happens? Well, verse 1, the wise woman builds her house, the foolish one tears it down. Just ask yourself this. Are you building up your house? Are you tearing down your house? That's a simple place to start. Are you building it up? Are you tearing it down? Now, this is the foundational point I'm going to make for the rest of the message as well. I believe that men, if you are here this morning and you are married, and if you're not married this morning and you're single and you're planning on getting married or whatever, this is important. You need to listen. Men are called to be the leaders of the home. 90% of the marriage, I think, falls on the man. We are called to be the spiritual leaders of the home in many different ways. I hope we are the ones to say, hey, honey, let's pray about this. Let's seek the Lord on this. Let's be in the word. Making sure this, that tone is set in the house of being the spiritual leaders. That is a biblical concept, and I believe that, and I teach that, and I try to live that. Now, I also believe that 90% of the emotional health of the marriage falls on the woman. I see verses like this. The wise woman builds her house. The foolish pulls it down with her hands. I know in my years of marriage, Dawn's emotional state dictates the marriage. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you guys because I'm not trying to present anything here that, that says we got this all figured out. We don't. If I come home and I am a bit grouchy, a bit grumpy, and I walk in the house and Dawn says, what's wrong? I'm stressed about something at church. I'm just in a mood or something like that. Dawn will very lovingly, very straightforward, tell me to leave. She'll say, go get your joy back, then come. She goes, there's no reason to be here if you're not going to be happy. She, now, this was something I try to teach and preach. She is my wife. Before she's my wife, though, she's my sister in Christ. And as my sister in Christ, sometimes she needs to do those things. She needs to stop and say, listen, you, you don't got any joy right now. And, and don't bring it in here. See, here's the, what I found out. If I come home and I'm in a bad mood, I don't bring down the family. I'm told to leave. If Dawn's in a bad mood, she brings down the whole house. I mean, she does. <laughs> I have tried telling her the same thing. Hey, honey, leave. Go get your joy back. She says no. She stays. So Proverbs 14.1 is true. The wise woman builds her house. The foolish pulls it down with her hands. She does. Women, I'm telling you right now, there is more power in your words towards your spouse than what you can ever imagine. When Dawn comes and she's negative towards me, I become negative. When Dawn comes and she's critical towards me, I become critical. But when Dawn comes and she's encouraging to me, I feel like I can take on the world. There is power in words. Keep your hand here in Proverbs. Just jump ahead two chapters real quick. Take a look at Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16, 24. Pleasant words. Proverbs 16, 24. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. Oh, there's power in those words. There truly, truly are. But also, please remember... Wives, you are a sister in Christ to your husband. Sometimes you need to correct. Sometimes you need to admonish. Sometimes you need to rebuke. 
Wasn't that long ago, I was having a little woe is me moment, and I was texting with Dawn about something, and I was just having this little woe is me, and she said, just stop whining. I wish I, I should have brought my phone. I could have read the text to you. She said something about stop whining. She goes, go find somebody to pour into their, whole, to their soul eternity. That's what she said. She goes, go find someone to talk to about eternity with. She was right. Now, does that mean I like to hear it? No. Does that mean that in 22 years of marriage, have I ever quoted Proverbs 14, 1 to her? Daily. Daily. I remember one time I went up to Dawn and I said, honey, I, I need you to be a cheerleader. She said, you should have married a cheerleader. And she walked away. That's what she said. I love her. I love her. She also, though, does, I'm, I'm teasing a little bit, she also does realize the power of words. And now let me repeat this point. Women, wives, when you're negative towards your husband in your marriage, you're going to make them negative. Women, wives, when you're critical towards your husband, you're going to make them critical. But when you are encouraging in the Lord, equipping them in the Lord, you're going to make your marriage powerful. Please don't tear down your, your house with words. There's no good that comes out of that. Is this applicable to single and to men as well? You bet it is. We've talked many times in the book of Proverbs on the power of your words. There's power in your words. The Bible says that words are life. If you're constantly walking around in some anger, some bitterness, some critical spirit, you know what? You're going to suck the joy out of the room. No one's going to want to be around you. Your joy is in the Lord. But if you come in, and I'm not saying some false I created a new word there. False, fake type of words. They're words of life. They're words of life. You can speak truth in love, and it can be done. Watch your words. Your words are powerful. What else do we see here? Take a look at verse 11. The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Verse 11. The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Look at these words, these, these positives and these negatives. We have verse 1. Tearing it down, pull it down. Verse 11, overthrown. When I walk in wickedness, when I walk in foolishness, I'm going to hurt myself, I'm going to hurt my marriage, I'm going to hurt my family, I'm going to hurt everything. But when I walk in wisdom, verse 1, and when I walk in uprightness, verse 11, I flourish. Oh, I want to flourish. Let's talk about what it means to flourish here. Go with me to Psalm 92, please. Psalm 92. There's this great compare-contrast of flourishing in Psalm 92. Because most everybody I meet wants to flourish. They do. They don't want to stand there at the bottom of the pit. They want things to be different. But the problem is the world teaches you this idea of how you can flourish. Psalm 92 mentions this a little bit. Take a look at verse 5 of Psalm 92. Oh Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass, when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. Okay, look at the description here. Verse 5, God is great, his thoughts are deep. Verse 6, a senseless man does not know. In the original Hebrew, it means you're an animal, you're brutish. You're not thinking of anything deep. You're just thinking of food. You're thinking of procreation. You're thinking of just fulfilling yourself. Grew up on a farm, we had pigs, we had sheep. I never had a deep discussion with either one of them. They just wanted to eat. They wanted to be animals. And you would stop and say, well, we're better than this. I've seen some guys. They're not better than this. We are sometimes senseless, brutish animals. We are, verse 6, a fool. We are, verse 7, grass. But here's the problem. We're a grass that, verse 7, flourishes in sin. Take a drive through certain neighborhoods. You'll see a lot of grass flourishing in sin. 
And we sit there with this awe, this, oh, I wish I could have that. I wish I could be like that. I want to flourish as well. Well, what's your standard of flourishing? Because take a look here at the flourishing grass. Now jump ahead, if you will, please, to verse 12. The righteous, remember righteous is just a fancy word. It means to be made right. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Listen, you're here this morning. You're going to flourish either like grass and sin or like a palm tree, a cedar tree in the house of the Lord. You are going to flourish one way or the other. Now, what is more stable? Obviously, the palm tree, house of the Lord, this idea of a cedar in Lebanon, this big, powerful tree versus grass. You know what happens also? When you flourish as grass in iniquity, the closer you get to the end, this is what I've seen, the more bitter, angry, and depressed you get. You start realizing you're past the prime of your life. You start realizing the foolish choices you have made. You start realizing you're closer to death than you are to birth. And next thing you know, the only natural reaction to that is, I'm not right with the Lord, and now I'm going to walk in bitterness, anger, and depression. Because this is not what I wanted my life to be. What's the flip side if you flourish in the Lord? Take a look at 14, same chapter. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. See, when you're a believer, the closer you get to the end, the more exciting it gets. Because you see the generations that hopefully you've impacted. You realize your race is almost over. Perfect health, perfect peace, perfect everything is waiting for you just around the corner. That's what's so discouraging when you see a born-again, on-fire believer, the closer they get to the end, decide to just take it easy. I mean, imagine running a race, and you have worked so hard at this race, and you can see the finish line. Would you not push as you got closer to the end to say, I want to finish strong? Not, you would not just stop and sit by a tree and say, I don't want to finish. But that's what we do sometimes as believers. We get closer to the end, and we plant ourselves more firmly like grass in this earth. No. 14, they shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there's no unrighteousness in him. The closer you get to the end, generally speaking, the more generations you have to influence for the Lord. The more wisdom you have bought up, the more wisdom you understand. Get out there and represent Jesus Christ in all that you say and all that you do and finish strong. But you get to decide, are you going to flourish like grass or palm trees, cedar trees, and the house of the Lord? The foundation has to be the house. Jump back now, if you will, please, to Proverbs 14. There's also another word here that kind of gets repeated I find kind of interesting. Verse 1 of 14, the wise woman builds her house, the foolish one tears it down. But look at 11, the house of the wicked be overthrown. But verse 11, the tent of the upright will flourish. Note the word changing there. The tent flourishes, not the house. Now, if you had to choose, you would always choose a house over a tent. Now, you heard me make jokes about this before in many different ways. I'm not a fan of camping. I don't understand camping. I have a house. I have air conditioning. I have heat. I have a bed. I have an indoor bathroom. Why would I go pay money to go stay some other place where none of those things are existing? I don't understand that. I know some of you are offended by that. Now, some of the people say, oh, then you haven't camped like I've camped. So then they invite me to go see their camper. That's not a camper you have. I would like to live in your camper because your camper has better things than my house has. 
But the wording here in verse 11 is house and tent. And I think that is very important. Verse 11, the house is overthrown, but the tent flourishes. How can a tent flourish? Now you've got to jump to the New Testament and think like Paul and Peter. Peter called his body a tent in 1 Peter 1. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 keeps referring to himself as a tent. Tents are temporary. They don't last. You don't want to live in a tent your whole life. It's temporary. He's trying to remind you here in verse 11, Solomon through the Spirit, is that you are a temporary being. You're just a tent. Please remember this. This world is so absolutely temporary. It is. And the whole scheme of heaven and hell, so much that happens on the earth, does not matter. Philippians says your citizenship is in heaven. Now, we are very, very blessed Very blessed. As we mentioned, as Renee mentioned in the announcements, we're meeting here today freely and openly. We are very blessed to live in a country where we can do that. And that also gives you the right and the privilege to go out and represent Jesus Christ in every interaction, every conversation you have. Never take that for granted. What a blessing it is to have that. Please remember this, though. America as a country does not go on to eternity. Americans can, but America doesn't. We need to be in the business of saving Americans. Because that's what matters. Because our citizenship is in heaven. I am a tent. It is temporary. And I need to focus on eternity. Please don't be a tent and try to live as a house down here. It will not work. Please don't be a palm tree, a cedar in Lebanon, and try to live like grass. It won't work. Realize you have a different calling, a different privilege, a different responsibility to look past the here and now and to look towards eternity. I think this is where we fail a lot in life. Be it in marriage or as individuals, we don't think about eternity. We think this right here is everything. We forget that. Uh, Dawn and I read a marriage book one time. It was the best marriage book we ever read. It was called You and Me Forever. And it changed the way we looked at marriage. changed the way we looked at a lot of things. In fact, um, started going through a devotional with it here as well, too. I just want to share with you a couple quotes from this because it really impacted us. Because what happened was this. Most marriage books that we've ever read, they're, they're not bad. But, but they get to these little detail things. It's like, okay, husbands, do a better job picking up your dirty clothes. Oh, bless your wife. Wives, do a better job of encouraging your husbands. Oh, bless them. All that stuff is true. But we spend so much time dealing with these tiny little things without thinking about eternity. And, you know, that's the way I used to look at marriage counseling. We're going to get together. Okay, husband, tell me your problems. Okay, wife, tell me your problems. Okay, now what what are we going to work on this week? Husbands, when you get home, don't throw your wallet and keys on the kitchen counter. Don't do it. That's what I want you to work on, okay? And wives, I want you to work. And it was like, like, okay, we got this. We read this book and we realized, wait a second. How about we just get our eyes on Jesus? How about we just get our heart on eternity? I just want to read you a couple of things out of this. It says, many people will tell you to focus on your marriage, to focus on each other. But we discovered that focusing on God's mission made our marriage amazing. Draw close to him and let your marriage be the overflow of that. When things are right with God, your marriage can actually become what it was designed to be. Peace comes when both parties come to an agreement. Agree on God. Agree on his holiness and the supremacy he deserves in your lives. When two people are right with God, they'll be right with each other. Eternal mindedness keeps us from silly arguments. There's no time to fight. Boy, that hit us. Eternal mindedness keeps us from silly arguments. There's no time to fight. We have better things to pursue than our own interest. Too much is at stake. 
God created us for a purpose. We can't afford to waste our lives. We can't afford to waste our marriage by merely pursuing our own happiness. You know how many times I hear that? Somebody will call me up and they'll say, I'm not happy in my marriage. I'll say, sometimes I'm not happy in my marriage. God's not called me to happiness in my marriage. He's called me to joy in Jesus Christ. If I'm looking towards dawn to make me happy, I'm going to walk in constant, utter disappointment. She is amazing. She's the most amazing woman, I think, on this world, but she can't make me happy. Christ brings me joy. And when her and I both got to that realization that our joy comes from the Lord, not from each other, what a blessing that was to come together as brother and sister in the Lord and also in marriage to stop and say, what matters most is eternity. Eternity. Now, do we have this figured out? No. I always try to be honest with you up here. I'm not going to present this idea of perfection. I knew when I was preparing this message, I started preparing this message on Thursday, and I was really taking a lot of notes yesterday morning. I knew when I was working on this, the enemy's going to attack. I'm teaching on marriage. I'm teaching on life. I'm teaching on family. And I have learned in my years of teaching that I have to either go through it before I teach it or go through after I teach it. I got home yesterday. And one of the first things I told Dawn is, I'm teaching on marriage. I'm teaching on marriage. I'm teaching on family Sunday. And I'm going through Proverbs 14. So don't screw it up, Dawn. That's what I said. <laughs> I said, the enemy's going to attack us. He's going to attack us today. And I'm not going to lie to you. There was moments of tension. There's moments of stress because we, we've done this for 20 plus years. We understand. And if any of you ever feel called to go into ministry or to teach a study, please understand you will be attacked. You just will. That's why it's so important to be prepared and to be ready. I always pray this. Ezekiel prayed in Ezekiel chapter 2 that he could have a head like flint, a hard head. Ministry is not for the thin-skinned. So have a hard head and a soft heart for people. So I said, honey, he's going to attack us today. And he did. These little things of tension start building up where you can start feeling it. And you just, you just want to. You want to let the flesh take over. You want the flesh, you want to say this, you want to do that. It's hard. It's absolutely difficult. And I just want to encourage you, if you're here this morning and you're hearing this, be it single, be it married, and you stop and you say, I want my house to be built on the Lord. I want that foundation on him. I want that. Amen. I encourage you. I support you. We want to help you. But I also want to remind you, it's going to be a battle. Because anytime you choose to go deeper in the Lord, the enemy is going to push back. That's why it's so vitally important to have a strong walk with the Lord. Take a look at verse 2. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. He who is perverse in his ways despises him. That word walk, that's one of those Christian words that we throw around a lot. How's your walk going? Walk is supposed to denote progress. You're not staying the same. You're growing deeper in the Lord. We don't say, how's your sit going? How's your crawl going? How's your backsliding going? No, how's your walk going? You're making progress to being more like Jesus Christ in all that you say and all that you do. I believe it was Spurgeon that said that Christianity is like a greased pole. If you stop climbing up, you're going to slide down. There's a lot of truth to that. Once again, back to times when I talk to people, individuals or couples, and they come in and say, I just don't feel this, I just don't feel that. Hey, how's your walk going? Not good. Hey, James 4.8, draw close to God and he'll draw close to you. If we don't put the time, energy, and effort into it, we're not going to have a strong walk. That's just the honesty of it. So you want to, verse 2, walk in uprightness and fear the Lord. Oh, goodness, hope you understand the fear of the Lord. 
that, that is so important. Remember back at our beginning in Proverbs, Proverbs 1, understanding the fear of the Lord. Fear him in your decisions. Fear him in your guidance. Fear him in your finances. Fear him in all things where you stop and you say, Lord, how silly of me to make any decision without seeking you first. To truly stop and say, Lord, I want to walk in fear of you, this all reverence and respect of you, a holy God that I want to glorify. I want to build on this real quick. Can you go with me to James, please? James 4. I got this prayer I try to pray every morning of, Lord, I'm just a vapor. Give me a vision. Who am I to decide anything today? James 4, please. You guys are probably very familiar with this passage. James 4, uh, 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. How often do we do that? Verse 13, I plan my life. I plan my day. I plan my career path. Verse 14, I'm a vapor. I'm a morning fog. You know, you guys know what that's like. Parents, you know, kids, you remember. There's fog, you can't have school. All of a sudden at 10.30, it becomes a beautiful day. Appears for a little time in the morning and then disappears. Verse 15, what's the Lord's will? Here's the catch to that. You got to say, Lord, I fear you. I fear the idea of making decisions without you. It always concerns me when I see Christians make huge life decisions. Who to marry, where to work, where to go to school, what house to buy, what job to take. They make these huge life decisions with just a token little prayer to God. Lord, I want to know your perfect will. Because anything I do out of your will, on my own accord, because I just think it's best, verse 16, I'm boasting and my arrogance and boasting is evil. I don't want to go down that path. Lord, I'm a vapor. Give me a vision. Let me walk in fear of you because I want to do what you call me to do. So now we talk about this idea of a walk. Jump back to Proverbs and let's finish this up. How are we supposed to walk? Verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is way of death. Don't walk according to your neighbors. Don't walk according to the world. Walk according to the Lord. See, here's the problem. Sometimes you can't tell the church from the world. Sometimes we dress like the church. We talk like, excuse me, we dress like the world. We talk like the world. We act like the world. We live like the world. We spend so much time interacting with the world that if you just take a slice and say, show me the believers and show me the world, I I can't really tell them apart. Because verse 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. Because this is what everybody else is doing. And it seems right. I mean, everybody else just lives that way. Everybody else just makes decisions that way. Everybody else just has a marriage that way. That's what everybody else does. That's going to lead to death. We're called to be different. And the only way to do this is through the strength of the Lord. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. Please remember the simplicity of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you walk out of this study today and you're like, okay, I get it. I'm pumped up. I'm going to go home and I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Please remember Psalm 127. Unless the Lord is the foundation, it's all in vain. Please do not walk according to the world. Walk according to the Lord. What else can we find out about our walk? Verse 14. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. Backsliders are filled with their own ways. For a while, it's, it's pleasurable. If sin was instantaneous pain, 
we would not sin. Sin feels good for a season. There's a reason why it feels good for a season. And so since it feels good for a season, verse 14, I fill myself with it. And as I fill myself with it, I think I'm going to be happy and satisfied. And I look around and say, what happened? What happened to my life? What happened to my marriage? What happened to my walk? What happened to my relationship with Christ? I filled myself with the world. Look at the end of 14. A good man will be satisfied from above. Now here's the problem. Satisfied from above doesn't sound as much fun. Maybe we need to change our definition of what fun is. Because it comes down to what brings joy, what brings peace. There are temporary moments of happiness in this world. You've heard me mention this maybe before. Birthdays are generally happy. Christmas is generally happy. But I tell you this, you're only going to be satisfied from above. I see this in my kids. I forget that I had to learn these lessons. When I was a kid, you kind of forget, but I see this in my kids. I, I just had one boy um, a while ago. They were watching this show, and nowadays, you know, all the episodes are available for you. So it's not like where you had to watch one show, wait a week, watch the other show again, then you had to wait three months over summer. You can watch them all in just a span of a few weeks. And they really got into this show, really liked it. It was a good show, and they got done with it. And it's like, there's not another season of it. It's just all done. Now, I know that sounds a little silly, but that, there's this moment of emptiness, I remember a couple Christmases ago, there was one of my boys, and we really tried to teach them and train them. It's nothing about gifts. Good golly, get past the materialism. It has nothing to do with that. But there was this one item that they kind of had their hearts set on, and it didn't work out the way they wanted. And even though they got X, Y, and Z that they could ever imagine, there was this moment of just, I didn't get what I wanted. I tell you guys, do, one, do me a favor. Look at 14 with me one more time. The backslider in his heart will be filled in his own ways. You can fill yourself in your own ways and it will be temporarily fun for a while with a whole lot of regret, a whole lot of conviction from God and a whole lot of condemnation from Satan. It ain't worth it. Or you can be satisfied from above. Take the eternal route. Take the joy and peace that God wants to give you. And then lastly, verses 26 and 27. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Please remember the fear of the Lord is not walking in the fear of, oh, I didn't pray right, God's angry with me. Oh, I didn't worship enough, God's angry. I didn't read enough, I didn't come to church enough. No, that's misunderstanding. There is a healthy, all reverence, respect for who God is. He is God, I am not God. You get the glory, I don't want it. There's a fear to this idea of how dare I even think I can make my own life decisions. Lord, I seek you in all things. And when I walk in that fear, verse 26, there is a strong confidence. Because I'm not basing this on my own decision. I, I don't know how many times over the years people have called me up. And they'll call me up at 7, 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night saying, Pastor, I really need you to pray. Why? Tomorrow morning I've got to make a really big decision. Okay, well how long have we known about this? For a long time. God gave you months to get prayed up for it. Gave you weeks, gave you days. Have you prayed about it? Well, that's why I'm calling you. Okay, well, I can't, I guess I can pray for you, but really this is supposed to be you praying about it and seeking the Lord on your will, on what God wants for your life, because I don't know what God wants for your life. And I'm just telling you, if you're that person that I really want to do what God wants me to do, walk in the fear of the Lord. There's a strong confidence, and there's a place of refuge There's a place of safety and strength. And the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Fountain of life, it carries this idea of just being blessed. And you see this fountain because you're stopping and saying, Lord, I'm doing it your way. 
I'm not satisfied with what I'm doing. I'm satisfied in you. I'm not filling myself with what I want. I'm filling myself in you to really have that foundation on them. And I just encourage you guys, as you, as you leave here today, please understand what it means to have a foundation on the Lord personally and your family and your home. Please remember that. Please remember the power of your words, ladies. Please remember, men, if you are married and you have that responsibility, remember the importance of leading. If you're here today and you're single, please become the spouse you would want someone else to be. Seek the Lord on that. Walk in his righteousness. Walk in his fear. Remember your tent, temporarily here, and you're either going to flourish like grass or you're going to flourish like the palm tree and the cedar of Lebanon. I want you to flourish in the things of the Lord. Hey, let's put this into prayer here. Worship team, if you want to come forward. Lord, we're just thankful. Thankful for you being a God of grace and mercy. And if we're here today and we are struggling with a lot of, I failed. Oh, Lord, show us that you're a God of second chances, third